everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Talk and Pit. I'm extremely excited to introduce our guest we have today. Uh, Dr. Ted, known him for a while. He used to come visit me in Starkville, not too far away from the old Pittsburgh area. Dr. Ted is a sports science consultant. He works with MLB, NFL, NBA, um, literally just sending a lot of different resources out to everybody that I always appreciate every month. And I feel like it's a great way to stay connected. But um, Dr. Ted, welcome to the podcast. Oh, great to hear. I appreciate being invited. Yes, of course. It's um, We're lucky to have him on. I feel like he's great because he pops up and visits everybody across the country. I don't know how you have time to do it, Dr. Ted, but uh, wealth of knowledge. And I'm excited to hear more about what you've been doing recently and um, just your wealth of knowledge over time. And first thing, Dr. Ted, uh, can you just give us a brief overview of your professional background? Because um, you, yeah, you kind of work with a lot of different people and I'd love to hear more. Yeah, you know, when I was uh, in graduate school at Ohio State, and um, when I started Ohio State, that was like when strength coaches just started getting hired in the profession. You know, the profession was just in its infancy. So I was like at the first NSCA conventions. Um, and so while I was going through graduate school, I was also the assistant strength coach. So there was the head strength coach and myself. <laughs> so I was, a, you know, at that time, you didn't have like a whole staff of assistants. So while I was going through graduate school, it was great to have the applied aspect of what you were learning in the classroom uh, and applying it to the athletes we trained at uh, Ohio State. So that was very, you know, valuable. It was great to uh, meet people that were just starting in a profession and to see that how that has evolved. Um, and so I got to work as a strength coach, uh, and then I've worked as, uh, you know, as an exercise scientist, uh, I've also had a, you know, private training facility. Um, so I've had a lot of different experiences, um, you know, all valuable, but I think what I enjoy most is, uh, you know, trying to serve as a, uh, as a, as a source of information for the strength coaches that are out there. Um, because time's, you know, an issue. And, hey, I don't have time to, you know, to read this or find this. And so if I can be, a, you know, find a niche to assist, you know, strength coaches or leagues with uh, keeping up with the most recent research, then, uh, you know, I, I enjoy doing that. Because when I go visit, you know, I learn just as much, uh, you know, visiting and seeing how people implement their programs differently. And I find that of value. No, definitely. Uh, we always love when you come through and start to ask some different questions. And you really start mm -hmm. to turn my wheels of like, okay, I'm doing all these things. And we have 19 different sports here, you know, here at Pitt in particular, when I was at Mississippi State, we had nine um, that I oversaw. But the question you would ask, I'd be like, okay, maybe I need to reflect and update this as we get to like the off season period. So I always, always appreciate your drop in visits, um, get the wheels turned in and I start to refine and evaluate. So awesome. Awesome. Well, Dr. Ted, um, I don't know who all of listeners gets Dr. Ted's monthly sports science research update, but I am one of the lucky people to receive it, um, whether it's NFL, NBA updates, um, looking at some different research. But Dr. Ted, I'm curious, how do you go about organizing your, your monthly newsletter, or this information that you're sending out and the different topics that you're covering um, on a yearly basis? So uh, every day I get up, I do literature reviews. Um, and it could be on a variety of topics. Um, also, you like to see what, you know, what topic is in the news on that particular day. Uh, we can go back to that tragic Monday in December when Damar Hamlin. So I remember watching the game with my wife and boom. So I've got, I got, I have to do some literature searches. <laughs> so uh, so you, you find out, you know, Commodio Cordis, you know, you start looking at all the research for that, you know, shoot that off the teams, you know, it disappears to be the mechanism. Um, so sometimes, you know, when you see that, you know, American football is a game that's, uh, it's a great source of, it's, it's the most popular sport. It's the most top popular television show on TV. Uh, probably the most you know, the amount of gambling that's on that sport's enormous. But it's always, it has a target that's on its back. 
So, you know, uh, when you go through and you look at the research, you go, hey, this is this is a common occurrence. It typically happens in youth more so than adults. Uh, that situation they were at the Mar, and I go, <laughs> you know, you're going to have media people come out and say, this is just another example that this sport is barbaric and should be banned. And uh, you have to have your, you know, your, your facts. It's easy to, you know, take shots, but, um, you know, you have to have an educated approach for responses and, and to messaging. Um, so for instance, so in that, that's one instance, you know, so boom, I've got a topic uh, a couple years ago, Sam Darnold, you know, uh, had mono. So you want to, you know, update a team with, you know, what are the, things you need to be concerned about with mono, you know, you have rhabdo that gets in the, in the media. Uh, you know, you'll have, um, you know, concerns with female athletes with uh, the female triad or ACL injuries. Um, stuff with, you know, the effects, the interactions of different cleat types on synthetic surfaces. So there's a, you know, variety of things with the, uh, you know, sports dietitians, you know, what are some banned substances? What are some illegal substances you're seeing? What are some different, uh, uh, you know, analysis that are being taken place that, you know, you're finding this particular type of supplement could, you know, lead to problems. So it's a learning, it's a, you know, it's a learning experience for me, but you know that you want to keep people updated with the information that they need. Um, and now, you know, I have, you know, a certain number of GMs. Like, hey, I want to be on that mailing list. So now you have to, you know, put stuff in there that could look at, you know, the analytics of sports, you know, uh, technical and tactical aspects of sports. So that's what I do, you know, each day. And it, and it could be on a you know, variety of sports or this research article could affect it would be beneficial for all sports. Um, so that's how I put it together each month. Uh, is it's a daily process of categorizing the research, making sure that you've got enough in there that is beneficial for the sports medicine staff, for the sports performance staff, and for the front office and the dietitians. So you're covering, you know, a lot of bases. And sometimes you may have a, an issue where, geez, you know, there were six hamstring articles in that. And in, in the next issue, there might be one. So um, so that's how I, you know, I put that together and I know Al Johnson at the, uh, CSCCA, I've just started putting together for them a monthly, uh, update that covers all sports. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, if you can learn and then assist people with keeping up to date, you know, that's fun. No, and extremely helpful. And I think even for me personally, when you send it, let's say to myself and, and Felix Prosler, director of sports science, it's a good communication starter as we kind of send it to whether it's like the basketball strength staff down over the hill in a separate weight room. It's like, hey, read this article that was really interesting, but but you started that channel or conversation, um, which is really, really neat. And I think that's a, a large audience that you have to to cover in regards yeah. to yeah, front office and, and sports med and, and same thing. Like if we're running into an issue of like, whether it's an ACL or cleat interaction with, especially here, because we have turf being in Pittsburgh, it's really cold um, between baseball and soccer. Um, football does have grass, but, but how that interaction with the, with the boot and the, or the cleat, yeah. and the, the grass um, synthetic and all that is, is really interesting. And a conversation starter with the sports med like looking at that and is it like velcro attaching that they're trying to get off or, or what's happening with the mechanism for sure yeah you know the other thing that uh you know when you're you know when you're you're looking at your your sports science uh of tracking of your practices for your different sports um you know i think uh putting down you know what were the environmental conditions of the practice yeah uh, I don't think enough people do that. And, I, and that's easy to do because then you can start looking at, you know, what other factors were involved in, in that particular practice, you know, was, you know, what was the, uh, you know, what was the uh, turf conditions wet or dry? Was the humidity high or low? 
and they and those factors do have uh, do have an impact. Yeah, no, I think about any time we'd run like the submax beep test when I was in Mississippi or South Carolina, and and even whether we we're on turf or grass, the heat and humidity, you know, and the temperature and how that would interact with heart rate, you know, is is always important too. So oh yeah extremely interesting and, and great tidbits or notes. It's like, yeah, within the, within the card of testing, it's like, not only are you going to put all your, your benchmarks and numbers, but also you should probably write down what's going on outside. You know, what are the environmental conditions? Oh, it, yeah. so important. And then, you know, I know there was one team, I said, you know, make sure that, you know, when you go back, if there was any injuries in that particular practice, identify the exact period. Mm -hmm. Because then at the end of the year, you can, do a retrospective analysis. And so one particular team found that there was one drill that was accounting for 75% of their injuries that occurred in practice. Wow. So, so that once again, though, that's information you can provide to the, uh, you know, the coach at the, you know, and going into the next season. No, definitely. That's a, that's a good note. Cause even it's easy to categorize clearly with catapult as a, easy. a piece. Easy. yeah, you're already putting in all the drills. So why not benchmark or tag? Yeah. Just benchmark well. that. And, um, and then you can, you know, that, that, that seems to be helpful, but with regard to, you know, the research and that times and issues. So hopefully this year I'll have uh, an audio file of those research articles. Oh, heck yeah. So I'm going to call it the commute. So, you know, here's the study. This is what they found. Go on to the next study. So you're commuting to work. You can listen to it in your car. And because I know a lot of people said, Ted, I, there's no way I could read, you know, 15, 20. I just don't have time once the season starts, which is completely understandable. So try to put that into a uh, an audio file. That would be great. Hopefully, hopefully soon. Yes, yes. I'm just imagining you, Dr. Ted, when you wake up, you're like, all right, hey, instead of reading the newspaper, Dr. Ted's just reading the research. You know, it's happening. And that would be Well, I've got to read current events first. <laughs> with that, I have probably four or five sources. Because, you know, is this is this a conservatively balanced uh, media outlet? Is this, uh, you know, progressive, middle of the road? So I try to read a variety of uh, news sources to look at the current events to see how that's messaged. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> that's cool. So Dr. Ted, you have such like a wide, you cast a wide net, right? Reaching out to whether it's front office, sports med, nutrition, strength, sports science. Um, in your words, how would you define high performance? Because I feel like that's a big, whether it's high performance, human performance, that's a big term uh, or verbiage being thrown around to kind of encompass all these different areas. What are your thoughts around that? Well, I certainly you wouldn't use the word low performance. So. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> for sure. I'm always, I'm always amazed. At the guy. Well, what other kind of performance is there? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, some of the early uh, descriptions of high performance were, you know, that a group of athletes or performers that were consistently outperforming their opponents. But then if you look at the aspects of, right, how can we allow our team, our athletes to continually try to perform or outperform their opponents? So you, within the structure of uh, the sports system, you know, you go, well, you know, the strength and conditioning, we have nutrition, we have sports psychology, you know, the tactical and technical aspects of the sport. And, and within that, I would add maybe some of the uh, maybe advanced analytics of the sport. So how to manage that and, you know, does the high performance, does that encompass sports medicine or is sports medicine sort of separate? Um, and that's an issue of if you're going to assign somebody, this is going to be the director of performance and then you'll have somebody in sports medicine. Well, that should be us. It shouldn't be like somebody that comes from a strength conditioning background. And uh, so really, I think if you, the way I look at it, the needs and the demands, and I look at this from an NFL perspective of a medical director are so overwhelming. You should just be the medical director 
and somebody else should be the performance director. Because if you're looking at, you know, somebody gets injured, you're dealing with, well, I got to get a second opinion. Um, or I've got my own personal PT. So it's, and then when you look at it from a legality standpoint, there was one team, and this is important for college athletes because it's coming. There was a player, he was in the training room. He's got like his Norma Tech boots on. And then he pulls out his phone, takes a selfie. You know, no big deal. But in the background was the head trainer and the team physician. So two weeks later, that player gets cut. So he files an injury grievance. Say, so you guys can't cut me. I, I, I was getting treatments. I got a picture to prove it. So you got to have a settlement. So now you're going, wait a minute, you, you were, those Normatech boots aren't medical treatment. They're performance recovery. So you literally have to separate what's a medical treatment and what's a performance recovery treatment. So when you're looking at, you know, say massage, is massage a medical treatment or is it a performance treatment? So you technically want to put it on the umbrella of performance because it becomes under the umbrella of medical treatment. Then there's a lot more that you have to, uh, more boxes you have to check if, if you do release an athlete um, or they file an injury grievance. So, so with the high performance, you know, you're over, you know, you're looking to make sure that, you know, the, the you're coordinating or communicating cons consistently with, you know, the sports medicine and the PTs. So who's on top in the flow chart? That's meaningless in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, Cause you have to have a athlete centric program. So the athlete is at the center of the bullseye. And as long as everybody understands that, things will get done properly. So, uh, but I think you really need a performance director and a sports medicine director. Yeah. And, um, but once again, it's, I, you have to look at the skill set of what's required for those positions. I've seen some people that they just don't have managerial skill set. That doesn't make it bad, but, you know, they could do some other things great but do you have managerial skill sets? So, um, and when you look at professional sports, who's the GM, who's the head coach, he trusts communicating with this certain person. Um, so there, I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. So, but the high performance is everything that can influence that athlete's performance, you know, is part of the high performance model. And some of it, you wouldn't, you know, <laughs> I think some of it doesn't get uh, if you're if you have great coaching intuition, you're looking outside the box. And that is and you see this in the NFL. You, you bring a rookie in who's outstanding, but new to the city. And maybe might be having issues you don't know unless, you know, you're constantly communicating with the guy. But he might identify with one of the food service workers as oh, it reminds me of my aunt or one of the uh, custodians. You know, reminds me of my uncle. And they had they develop a relationship. It could be the the guard at the gate that lets them into the parking lot. So once you start to observe what this player's doing throughout the course of a day and finding out what type of relationships they've built through the building then if, if I suspect there might be something going on, I got to go to those people. So if you look at the high performance model, I don't see them in the model, but they should be. Because sometimes they'll go, oh, you didn't know? <laughs> oh, no, I didn't know. But you know. So they technically are part of the high performance model because they know what's going on with that player, which is uh, you know crucial for the performance of the player and and making sure that, you know, you're, oh, I didn't know that. If you need any assistance, you let us know. So sometimes that chain of command or communication gets lost. And you see it at the college level, too, all the time. You know, you go and watch teams come into the training table. 
And I'm always amazed. You see the coaches sitting at one damn table. They go, what are you doing? You, you see each other all day. Go sit and talk with that player and have a meal. So it's those little situations, I think, that are part of the high-performance model that just get completely – because they're not sexy. And you, you can't <laughs> – you know, you can't write a book about that. But I think they, uh, you know, they get overlooked and are essential for, you know, what separates really average and good teams. I think sometimes it's those little details. Definitely. I think people don't think about training table. It's powerful. You know, I was talking with a performance professional um, when I was at a conference recently and they were like, yeah, when I was working at um, one of these private institutions, I, my goal was at training table to sit with a new person each day, you know, and have a new conversation instead of just sitting with the same persons. It's like, man, within this building, there's so many um, like people that I could learn things from, whether it's managerial skills and it, it doesn't have to be somebody just in your domain. And oh. to your point of like sitting with, maybe it is like the janitor, you know, or um, is somebody that like helps prepare the food um, or it could be somebody that helps sell tickets, you know, like I think it's super powerful. You can learn, learn things from anybody and, and why not oh, yeah. conversate over food. <laughs> and, and if you talk to people in the business world, there's a science to that. I mean, they'll talk about mirroring. And you go mirroring, they go, oh yeah. If, if I'm trying to land a sale from that person, I'm going to order what they order. Or, oh, you know what? I think I'll have what they have. Or, you know, oh, you're having a Cabernet? I'll have a glass. You know. Yeah. But they find that people let their guards down a little bit when you're breaking bread. Definitely. Definitely. No, I think uh, if you keep the athlete, um, that's the one thing we all have in common, right? Is like, we want the athlete to perform at the highest level and stay healthy. And I think if you keep that in the front, then you're good. But I think to your point, everyone gets caught up in like looking at the performance chart and being like, who's at the top, who's, who holds the power, um, who has the most influence on the head coach. And, and it really can't be about that, you know? And I think when it comes to backgrounds and some of these roles or positions, it's something that I thought about as I kind of looked at when I was hiring the director of sports science about a year ago, it's like, as I look at different institutions at power five schools and the director of sports science, like, some of them have their PhD, a little bit more academic. Some are strength coaches their whole entire career. And now that the director of sports science, there's not a, a one-size-fits-all approach, you know, especially in that role. So I think it's it's been interesting to see hiring tactics, you know, who is funding the position. That's extremely important as well. If, I, if I'm getting half funding from the hospital and half from athletics or half from academics and half from athletics, that's going to influence who I'm hiring. So I think to your point, it's been interesting to see the evolution. And it was something that I thought about, Dr. Ted, after you had presented at the Mississippi State Athlete Engineering Conference last year of kind of talking about the evolution of sports science, because I was getting prepared to host the role and like job responsibilities, minimum requirements, all that jazz with HR. Uh, it really made me look at things a little bit differently. So kind of to flip from high performance uh, to sports science. How would you define sports science in this day and age, uh, Dr. Ted, and kind of where, where you started to where it's at now as, as people have tried to make it super sexy and it's been happening over time? I'm curious your thoughts. Well, I would say if you if you open up a, a textbook, you know, when you say, or what is sports science? It says it encompasses exercise physiology, exercise biochemistry, sports psychology, biomechanics, sociology. So Sports science encompasses, you know, all those properties. Um, but unfortunately, what it, the way it started, you know, say 15 years ago, who can run a catapult unit? Suddenly the sports scientist. So I would say, to you know, the evolution of that definition should probably add two aspects. One would be a, a data science component and the athlete, the, the monitoring of the athlete relative to wearable technologies is something that, you know, that fits in, you know, you could say, well, that physiology is that biochemistry depends what the monitoring is, could be biomechanics. So I think that, you know, you have that layer of wearables and then you have another layer of, interpreting this data. So the diet, the data science part, and then 
who can communicate the data the simplest to the coach's liking. And sometimes it's uh, it's a GTG, you know, who's good to go. And I sometimes it can just be a text to the coach. It can be a quick call to the coach. He doesn't want to read a report. So I think sometimes, well, I've got this beautiful report. <laughs> I go, it is beautiful. Those people want to read it. He doesn't. He wants you to interpret to him. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've talked with head coaches and I've sent them some, you know, football analytics stuff. I think it looks great. It was, you know, maybe two pages. <laughs> so they great did. Could you boil this down to four bullet points for me? So, so the, it's taking the data, all these different components, and explaining it in the most concise fashion possible. And a lot of times when you look at, you know, the monitoring of the data and, you know, giving it back to the coach, if you're talking about 20 players, it's way too many. You should only be talking about a handful of players. So why have all these players on this report? He's not looking at them. You, you, occasionally you might get a head coach that's interested, in, but by and large, you know, you know, here's your issues. And then when you do deeper dive, you know, like if you got basketball, you got you know, NCAA tournament coming up. Then you start looking at maybe trends within the backups and the starters. And you go, well, this is, you know, research shows this is, you know, this what should be happening once we get in the tournament. So we've got to make sure that workloads for these guys go up and so forth. But uh, it's being able to communicate it quickly and effectively and, and in terms that they they understand and, you know, like they'll go with Q-chronic workload ratios. I rarely ever use that talking to head coach. It's just like, hey, our average practice is this. And we're about 20% above average, which would mean, a, you know, a Q-chronic of 1.2. So instead of saying 1.2, I go, we're about 20% above average. Oh, okay. Is it a problem? I go, no. But if we start going 50% above average three days in a row, we got issues. So it's being able to take it, explain it simply. And, you know, I don't, I don't try to uh, upset the apple cart too much in terms of their practice design. You know, a lot of times it's, you know, the, the coaches love using the word next man up. And so I, I, I go, how are you working on next man up in practice? And so what I'll do is I go, when you get to individual periods, I said, our starters are getting, you know, 30% more workload when we're in team periods, 40%, 50%, which is, that's how we're going to get better. I said, when we get to individual periods, label that, put a note to yourself on that indie period as the next man up, because I want my backups getting twice as many reps as in individual periods. So they're not going to get in the team period. I said, so you can sit there and talk about next man up, but if we're not preparing the athlete to be the next man up, they're going to get hurt. And we're doing ourselves a disservice. I said, we're not developing players. They asked Bear Bryant one time why he was so successful. And he said, I'm coaching next year's team this year. So by that, he had to strategically make sure that backups were prepared to be starters next year. No, that's a great and in the world of the transfer portal, that's even more important. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Oh man. Definitely. No, I think about uh I think about all the reports that come into my inbox on a daily basis, right? And I think it's been crucial to have like the head coach's report and then also the performance team report. Because to your point, Dr. said, the things that like maybe our, our nutritionists athletic trainer, our strength coach and sports scientist, things that we care about, positional norms. And yeah, if you see a long list of every single person versus if you're sending that safe report to the head coach, the head coach is going to be like, who's practicing today? It looks like everybody yeah. is limited and that's <laughs> never a good conversation to be had. So I really like that model um, and that quote that, that's powerful. And 
yeah, I think it's important to be developing players at all times because, yeah, you really don't know who's going to be on the roster at any given moment with the transfer. Oh, yeah. So. You know, yeah. And then the other thing, too, is I was speaking at a, a sports business journal conference in uh, Las Vegas last December. So it was uh, every uh, Power Five commissioner was there. So I'm listening to Kevin Warren speak, Greg Sankey speak, Brett Yormark, uh, Bill Phillips, and or Jim Phillips. And uh, so I'm listening to what they're talking about. And then I had to talk on, you know, you know, tracking. So, so I listened to what they said. So I had a moderator. And so I said, all right, you're an AD. You see this uh, line item come across your desk. It says, you know, $100,000 for tracking. And he would have maybe ask his assistant, go, what is this? Oh, those are those things that, you know, help, you know, we can track our, how fast or how, you know, far our athletes are running. And I said, no, I said, it's an insurance policy. I says, because in the next two years, when these athletes, you have a collective bargaining agreement and they file an injury claim to say, oh, you know, we were practicing wrong. You know, I got hurt because I was doing too much. I said, no, here's here's the practice report. I said, and you got to make sure when you write up these practice reports that you share with the athlete. I said, don't put anything that puts your organization at risk. You know, I don't want to see, you know, worst case scenario wording, <laughs> which you see in the literature. I go, why would I put that on a report or high danger zone? So I wouldn't put that in a report. I said, I, if something was like unbelievable, you know, high workloads, I would label that, you know, overtime game situation. I said, my opinion, then that's the best game scenario. <laughs> best case scenario. We still got a shot of winning. I said, so when you have like an overtime workload situation, you know, do you, do you occasionally hit that? Yes, you do. And is it dangerous? If we do it multiple days in a row, it is. So, and then I would just use your school colors for the highest workload. Because there is a, you know, one NFL team, a player files an injury grievance. They come in, look at the practice. And his attorney goes, what's this red? Why didn't you stop him? Because, well, red doesn't necessarily mean stop. No, in our world, it does. It's just, you know, stop signs red, stop lights red, you, you know, traffic light red, stop. So just use different colors. You can use red, but maybe make it the lowest workload. So if attorney looks at that, you got to make sure everything on there does not put your organization at risk. Well, but at the same time, it's communicating you know, what it's intent to be communicated, but do it in a smart fashion. Yeah, I'm making a mental note because I think a lot of the time, yeah, to your point, like everyone understands like a, a green, yellow, red, right? But like, if you're seeing a report over and over again, um, you're seeing red, 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 and then all of a sudden something happens bad on the back end, you're definitely setting yourself up to be in a, a situation yeah. that you probably don't want to be in, so... Great no, you can, you can communicate the same thing if it's just color-coded different then. You know, what's code red? Code red. <laughs> so put stuff on there that doesn't put you at risk if you get into a, in a situation where you have to bring like an arbitrator in to file a grievance. Definitely. That's that's really, yeah. So if you think about all the money that, that schools are definitely investing in from a wearable tech standpoint, it's a large number. Um, it, it, it's yes. good, but then also, yeah, communicating the information, you want to make sure that a CYA, 100%. I'm curious, Dr. Yeah. because you're around a lot of different pro sports organizations. Um, when you look at the sports scientist role between like the NBA, the NFL, and MLB, um, job requirements, you know, like what do these roles look like across the landscapes? Um, is there a little bit more like, data analytics is bigger in one sport. Like I know like baseball is always known for money ball, but what are you seeing from a, a roles and responsibilities and job perspective of like requirements for these roles? Like maybe biomechanics is bigger in another one. What are you kind of seeing I, you compare the different ones? I'm curious. I would say within baseball, you're seeing more biomechanics get hired. Um, and you'll see that, spe you know, specifically in this, or hiring an assistant sports science position. 
emphasis in biomechanics, or this another one could be more of an emphasis. It could be more general. Do you have a good exercise physiology background? Um, but I, I would say within baseball, if, if your skill set, you, you go, well, yeah, my data analytics is okay. There's always interns there that are whizzes at that. So, um, but, you know, if you're putting a staff together, you know, does this person have to be, I, I would say the, the way you're interfacing with the different teams, I would have communication skills above data analytics. Cause you know, you have somebody that's just phenomenal with the numbers and they just, you know, it's just like, like dead space when you're talking to somebody. Now this, this person needs to be in a room by themselves and then helps do the reports because their, their communication skills aren't elite. And I think communication skills uh, have, they trump, you know, great data analytics skills. That's just my opinion. Definitely. Yeah, I think. You know, sometimes you get somebody that's phenomenal at that and they just put together beautiful visualizations. And then that's where you ask, take these beautiful you know, visualizations, which I like, but can you explain that in two sentences? Yeah. Can you provide context on the back end? No, it's it's crazy when we send over reports via email and then like, hey, send the email, but then also follow up with just like walking up the stairwell, visit with the head coach and give them, yeah, those two points because everyone can see on the back end of emails how many people viewed it. They're open to it, right? The percentage. And sometimes, sadly, it's, it's not that great. So I think that face-to-face -face interaction and saving time is everyone is uh, limited on that it is super powerful. So awesome. Well, great feedback between high performance and sports science and kind of the lay of the land. Cause I know everybody's doing a little bit of research around like, okay, how many sports scientists do you have per team, you know, especially in the university setting. Um, and then also like, yeah, from a nutrition standpoint, what does that look like? Sports psychology uh, growing significantly right now as well, just with all the, the anxiety, mental health. Yeah. So definitely a lot of growing areas. And I think, in a leadership role, um, they talk about being like transdisciplinary now, you know, like you have to be dangerous yeah. in all the different areas and know enough just to, to sit at the table and have a conversation with the performance team holistically. So great insight um, to apply and some great quotes that I wrote down to, to keep it moving. So awesome. Awesome. Well, Dr. Ted, I know one thing you and I have in common is being lifelong learners, right? Constantly pushing the envelope, trying to inch our way along every day and get a little bit better. So I'm curious, um, do you have any books that you would recommend or podcasts uh, for any of our listeners or anything that they're like, if you haven't listened to this already, you got to go back or maybe something. I have you books know, I, to go I like back and read. To, I like listening to that Dr. Andrew Huberman out at uh, Stanford. I enjoy his podcast and, you know, I'll, I'll get on certain TED talks. Um, there, there was some advice that was given to me, you know, long ago. In fact, you know, the one guy used to own the Pittsburgh Pirates, Doc, or, uh, John Galbraith. So he spoke at Ohio State there in 1979. And I went up to him after his, his talk. I said, uh, Mr. Galbraith, I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? And uh, I said, give me some advice on being successful. He said, well, let me tell you, young man, he said, uh, what you want to do at your age, he said, is find somebody that has been unbelievably successful and is close to my age and befriend them. He goes, then you become my age. He goes, you find somebody very young that's hungry to be the best and you befriend them. He says, to, to, far too many people when they get older, they don't befriend a young, hungry individual that propels their ability to think and improve. And then the other set of advice was somebody said, you always have to set up your own personal board of directors. And they were very, and they were very specific on that. They go, what areas in your life, he goes, are important to you, like say financial. You know, it could be, you know, your marital situation or whatever. Um, it, it could be your professional development. He says, find somebody in each of those categories 
and ask them, you go, you know what, I'm, do you mind if, if I have questions on finance, I can call you and I want to put you on my board of directors, my personal board of directors. So if there's something I, you know, you know, and obviously I could have a very large board, but if I have a question on say different aspects of neurology, I've got somebody I know I can call. If I have somebody on a cardiovascular subject on, you know, the science of, uh, you know, muscle hypertrophy or protein metabolism, who can I call? So, you know, I have like a, a professional block and then I have a personal block. That's like, boy, that person, boy, they're a great role model for being a, like a, a great father and husband. You know, so you, you look and you go, you know, if I have advice, if I need advice, I'm going to call that person. So um, a lot of that, that you have to, you have to make a conscious effort to go in and put it on paper. You know, who's, who's going to be on your board of directors and, and self-reflect on where you might have deficiencies, both personally as well as professionally. Man, that's awesome advice. I think, uh, I know for me, like professionally, definitely have somebody when it comes down to like, if you call for a job, you know, and you want to call somebody that's unbiased towards like your next step, right? Like, oh, like a certain mentors you may look at and be like, oh, they want me to work in pro sports. I know they're going to push me or thrust me into this position. You got to have that person that's just like middle ground will shoot you straight, tell you the pros, tell you the cons and, and kind of, so I think. Yeah, having that uh, personal board of directors is extremely important. And I know I could probably broaden mine because I kind of only check a couple of those boxes. So I was writing down notes I'm like, okay, this is this is super helpful. And yeah, making sure that you pour into the next generation. I think that's that's the big thing for me when we have intern classes coming in um, is, is just making sure like a lot of our volunteer interns clear unpaid. So I'm paying them education. Uh, and yeah, they challenge my thought process and debriefing after lifts and hey, what did you guys see from your perspective? Because it's super powerful. Yeah. You know, and then in terms of some reading material, there's a book that the late Billy Packer wrote, which is, it's an older book, but Why We Win, where he interviews uh, several coaches and asks them the same questions. And, you know, um, I do like the daily coach. Uh, do you get that? I don't. I need to get it, though, clearly. <laughs> Anybody's coaching, you should get it. That's awesome. Uh, George Raveling and Mike Lombardi put that out every day. It's, uh, you know, it, it pops in every morning by 7 a.m. And I would say nine out of 10 times, it's a, it's a good one-minute read. Yeah, so really great for coaches. They did an article on the soccer coach at University of North Carolina, certain uh, the women's coach, and sort of his flaw. Um, I'll forward that to you, because I thought this guy, the way he has the teammates uh, critique and evaluate each other is the best I've seen. Yes, yeah. please do. That and and in awesome. today's world, you know, you know, that's hard to do. <laughs> Very, very hard. Yeah. He's, you know, he, he's successful. You know, sometimes it's the, uh, what is it? The cold fish philosophy. Occasionally you got to get hit across your face with the cold fish. And sometimes that wakes you up and it may not feel good, but it was probably what you needed at the time. So um, now sometimes, you know, in somebody might say, well, you know, that's sort of like bullying. I go, no, that's not bullying. You know, um, you have to build up, you have, somebody has to tell you sometimes, you know, you've got issues and you develop mental resiliency. You know, we, we, we train athletes, muscles or cardiovascular system. We make sure their energy systems are operating efficiently. So we stress it and allow it to adapt. Well, how do you expect somebody mentally to adapt if they're not stressed? So we, we have to, you know, develop some probably, you know, and then that's part of the mental health thing. But at the same time, you have to develop mental resiliency. That uh, I mean, you're telling me that the kids over in the Ukraine aren't developing mental resiliency over these. You know, it's been a year. 
you know, you know, I mean, trauma, but at the same time, dang, you know, if they get tough in a tough situation, do you think they're going to wilt because they lost their cell phone? It's like, no, I almost got killed yesterday. Um, so, you know, that's the one thing when you, you look generationally, you know, what was a hardship and what would you have considered to be a hard, you know, like today's hardships, you know, I, I can't get on my phone, the internet's down or, um, you know, somebody was, they were, you know, they were posting, you know, mean statements about what I posted and you just go, you know, my gosh, you know, have some, have some thick skin. And then we just put people on the, you know, I need to go to a safe spot. <laughs> it's like sometimes, no, there's, there's no safe spot. Uh, you know, sometimes people talk, you know, we'll call it tough love or, but you have to develop a certain degree of mental resiliency. And if you want to be stronger athlete, you have to be stronger physically as well as mentally. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's part of the, the mental health training. I think that some of the specialists do a, a tremendous job with. And, uh, you know, and if you look at your great coaches, I mean, they'll get on a player, but boom, then they build them up. I mean, they're, they're geniuses at that. They may not know they're doing it, but you watch – you know, the athlete feels like they're this big and then next minute they, they feel like they could dominate the room. So there's an art and a science to that. Other coaches you've seen, they'll just belittle and belittle and belittle. And those coaches end up getting fired. Definitely. Yeah. Having that having that balance. I like I like that language, mental resiliency, because it's so important. You know, and I even think about you talk about like stress. I kind of flip it to even we were talking about it earlier, like with recovery, you know, like when we're in the off-season training having 18 different gadgets hooked up to you for recovery may not be that time, you know, like maybe you should just let your bodily body uh, naturally adapt. You know, you, gotta, you have to allow it to adapt. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, stress can, you know, it's not a bad thing. Definitely. Yeah. Just understanding how to, to place it and dose it. So you have that response oh, that you need. Yeah. 100%. Awesome. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, this is all great advice. And I know you mentioned clearly a great Pittsburgher being with the Pirates, but um, any other big time mentors uh, for you, Dr. Ted, that people you would recommend, hey, have a conversation with this person um, and or like some big life lessons that you, you got from them? I'm curious. You know, I, I always have fond memories of, you know, all my junior high and high school coaches. They, they all had a positive impact. Obviously, the first strength coach I worked with at Ohio State, Steve Bliss, uh, he was who, uh, you know, Mickey Marotti worked with. And, you know, obviously, uh, you have fond memories of his influence. But, if you know, if, in terms of, uh, you know, the strength coach at that time, we were all coming on board almost, you know, at, at the same time. But I was always would go and visit with strength coaches I didn't know. Uh, tried to find the ones that were older than me. But if, you know, in terms of messaging to people that might be listening to this, I would say, you know, get to know a Mickey Marani, get to know a Tommy Moffat, uh, get to know a Joey Batson, um, get to know a Heather Mason. Um, so there's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, outstanding strength coaches and, and find guys that have retired. You know, there's a guy, Reagan Ong. Uh, people go, who is Reagan Ong? Reagan Ong was Howard Schnellenberger's strength coach at the U, then went with him at uh, Louisville, and then he stayed on. He was Rick Pitino's strength coach at Louisville. Just, uh, you know, a, a great guy, a pioneer in the strength conditioning world. Um, you know, I was fortunate. I would reach out. I did a lot of work with the Cincinnati Bengals and, uh, the strength coach, Derek Kimwood and part owner, Pete Brown, were tremendous influences. Um, I think the one thing I picked up from those two was you have to be well-read. So, uh, and, and Pete Brown may have been one of the most well-read guys I ever know. So uh, intelligent on a variety of topics. And, and you know, if you go and if you're going to have a seat at the table in college athletics, I want to know I'm reading the same books as the AD. I want to know I've read some of the same books as our university president. 
So when you walk in, you start discussing topics, they'll go, who's, who is she? What's her position? If you walk into the room and somebody says, oh, they're the strength coach. What's that mean? Definitely. Yeah. So, but very good. No, I think I've been, uh, I think I've been lucky because clearly our athletic director, Heather, like she's been a long time at uh, Ohio State and around Mickey and, and Heather and just seeing what they were able to do. And it created a platform of, of respect for me coming into my role of, like you're saying, Dr. Ted, that like, she's like, yes, Stephanie trains teams, but like her skill set, she can dabble in a lot of different things administratively, helping build out staffs, helping with hiring different head coaches, you know. Um, so I, I'm really grateful for the the representation that they created for the the steps and the seat for me to come and sit in now and and the respect that that Heather has for the role. So and that comes with just being exposed, you know, to to generational strength coaches like them to understand what we're capable of, uh, you know. So not just limiting me just in a box. Ideally, it's like no, actually, they can encompass and oversee a lot of different things and do it at a high level. So yes. Awesome, awesome people. And of course, Mickey's from Pittsburgh. So I've definitely been aware of right. very young in my career. I'm like, yes, great Pittsburgh folks. Um, all going on. And then Coach Batson, of course, I was at Clemson. So a couple of those people I was just really lucky to be around um, and, and learn from at a young age. And that's when it's important to ask a lot of questions because you don't get that much time with people like that. So Awesome, Dr. Ted. Well, I've taken up a bunch of your time already, but I can't thank you enough, Dr. Ted, for coming on the podcast with us today. And um, any great way for people to reach out to you, we can also, um, we can always include your email kind of in the, the podcast recap, but. Um, yeah, my email is, uh, you know, easy. T underscore Lambernitas at yahoo.com. Awesome, awesome. All right, guys. So if you want to follow up with Dr. Ted and maybe get on this uh, monthly sports science research update, then maybe reach out to him. Maybe you'll be lucky enough to make the list and, and receive that great information. But Dr. Ted, can't thank you enough for your time today. And um, hopefully I'll see you soon. Thank you. I, I hope to visit soon. Yes. Yes. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.